evidence and answers. Why is science always refuting Christianity? If God is powerful, how come he doesn't stop all the murdering? Why should I trust the Bible if it was written thousands of years ago? These are some of the challenging questions teens asked at our recent Youth Apologetics Conference. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we'll be listening to another message that was taken from our 2020 Evian Youth Apologetics Conference. Annually, Pat brings in guest speakers from all over to teach and equip the youth of today. Now we will listen as Pat answers some of these challenging questions in part three of this series, Tough Questions Teens Ask. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, we're in part three of the series, Tough Questions Teens Ask, and these were questions asked by the teenagers at our last Youth Apologetics Conference held here in Hawaii, and they asked some pretty tough questions here, over 70 questions. I wasn't able to answer them all at the conference, and so we're taking some time on our radio show to answer some of these questions because the teens asked some very challenging and great questions, and at our conference, the Q&A time is one of the most popular times at our conference. And so I want to take some time to answer some of the tough questions uh, that they asked during the conference. I've divided them into several sections. Part one and two, we answered questions regarding apologetics. Part two, I divided into Bible questions. So here are some of the tough Bible questions that they asked. Number one, how do you explain the disunity of the Gospels in their explanation of the events of Jesus' resurrection? When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they describe different aspects and have different details included in the resurrection of Christ. Well, this is what you would expect if you had four independent sources reporting on an account, all right? If you had four identical accounts, you would suspect that there's some corroboration going on between these four. But when you have four independent accounts, you would expect some differences. For example, if... I have four people at four different corners of an intersection and they witness an accident, all right? And I write the police report on taking the testimony of these four witnesses, maybe two, three days after the accident. If I get four reports and they are exactly identical in every detail, what would I suspect? Well, I suspect that these four corroborated with one another. But if I get four different accounts, and that's what I would expect as a police officer, and each person at each different corner sees a different angle of the accident. And so the person on the west side would see details that the person on the north side or the east side would not see. One had a better angle of the driver. One had a better angle of the intersection. You know, And so that's what I would expect, and that's what we have here in the Gospels. We have four different angles, four different independent accounts of the resurrection. Now the question is, are they contradictory accounts? No, they are not. Now skeptics make them appear to be contradictory, but when you put the gospel accounts together, they end up complementing one another. And most of the alleged contradictions can be answered. You know, just a brief example here. What was the sign written above Jesus on the cross? Matthew says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In Mark's gospel, it says, the King of the Jews. In Luke's gospel, it says, this is 
the king of the Jews. In John's gospel, it says Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So what did the sign say? Well, you, you put the four gospel accounts together and you're going to get the full reading. It says this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Right. So sometimes that's what you've got to do. They're not contradictory accounts. That would be a problem here. Instead, they're giving you different angles and different details of the life of Christ. And that's what you expect when you got four independent accounts of the life of Jesus and especially of the event of the resurrection. That's what you would expect. Next question. Is there a sin that cannot be forgiven? Well, first John 1 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So all our sin can be forgiven. There's no sin that's greater than the love of God, okay, or stronger than the grace of God. So all sin can be forgiven. There's one in the Bible that's mentioned, Matthew chapter 12, and it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, can Christians commit that today? Well, there's several views on this. Some say that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting Jesus Christ. If you reject Christ, then, you know, you're forever separated from him. Another view, and that's a fine position, another view, and, and this is my position, is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot be committed today. If you look in the context of Matthew chapter 12, what was going on here? Well, Jesus just delivered a man from demons, he just exercised demons out of a man. And then the Pharisees come up and say, well, he does this by the power of the devil, the prince of demons. That's how he's able to drive out demons. All right. So they're attributing Jesus miracles to the power of the devil. All right. And that's where Jesus says all sins can be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. That is referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit there. That's the unpardonable sin. And I believe what it is is attributing the works of Jesus to the devil. Whoever can look at the Son of God in the face and say, you do it. You do this by the power of the devil. Jesus said that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So that sin can only be committed by that generation, that generation that saw Jesus there upon the earth and could look at him and attribute his works to the works of the devil. So I do not believe that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can be committed today. The next question is, once you accept Jesus in your life and lose faith, do you have to accept the Spirit again? There are two positions that Christians hold. You know, one is that a person can be saved and in Christ and lose their salvation. And I believe if you hold to that position, then yes, you'll have to repent and receive the Holy Spirit and salvation once again. My position is that if you're truly saved, then you cannot lose your salvation. That doesn't mean you'll struggle or you'll be disillusioned or you'll fall in what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 3 into times of carnality where you're acting you know, in the flesh or you're stuck in sin, right? But I believe that if you're truly saved, then you cannot lose your salvation. Where does that come from? Well, John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believe him who sent me has eternal life. He has eternal life from that moment. How long is eternal? Well, it's forever. All right. Therefore, it's not temporal. Then again, John 10, 28, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's 
hand. And so our salvation there is secure in Christ where he says no one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, Ephesians 1.13 says, And you are also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believe you are marked with him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So according to Ephesians 1.13, you're sealed in Christ, sealed in the Holy Spirit, and no one can break that seal. Uh, back then in ancient times, a letter was sealed. There was a wax seal with the emperor's ring placed upon it, and no one could break that seal until it was delivered okay, to the proper owner. Mm -hmm. Then in Romans 8, of course, that great passage, who shall separate us from the love of God? And goes on to say, shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine or nakedness? He goes on and he ends the verse by saying, no, in all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, nor any height or death, nor anything in all creation, anything in all creation. Is sin part of creation? Yeah. But here it says, not anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus refers to those who are in Christ, okay? those who are believers. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. So it is my position, and I think there's good biblical support for this, that if you're truly saved in Christ, okay, that your salvation is indeed secure. Here's another uh, great question here. What is a good verse for people struggling with trusting God? Well, you know, a verse that comes right into my mind is, you know, a verse that uh, I learned long ago, and I've come to believe the power of its truth over the years. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In other words, to trust him completely. And it's hard to do at a young age when you're learning about God. But the more and more you learn about God, the more and more you walk with God, the more and more you're going to see that you can trust him, that his word is indeed true and shall come to pass. And then the passage says, lean not on your own understanding. Yes, sometimes God's truth goes against what we think is best. Sometimes we think we know what's better. But, you know, over the years when I did what I thought was right and what was better, it ended up being a complete disaster. And so that's a verse that has stuck with me, that sometimes you got to trust God, even though it doesn't seem to make sense in our eyes. God is all-knowing, omnipotent, omniscient. He knows what's best, and his word is indeed true. And you need to trust it, even though sometimes you don't understand or it doesn't seem to make sense. And a lot of that comes with just walking with God over the years and seeing how his promises are indeed true and come to pass. His wisdom is far, far greater than ours. And so we will make errors and we'll struggle along the way. But keep that verse in mind and learn that indeed he is a God that we can trust. And you'll see it as you continue to walk with him throughout life. Next question here, why do we go to church on Sundays? Isn't Saturday the Sabbath? Well, that is correct. You know, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. We're commanded to keep it holy. And it was indeed the seventh day or the day God rested, the seventh day. So why is it that Christians go to church on Saturday? Well, we are no longer under the old covenant, Romans 
chapter 5 through 7, but we're under the new covenant of Christ. And under the new covenant, we're no longer under the Old Testament law, but under the new covenant, the new law of Christ, which he established. Now, under the new covenant, all the Ten Commandments are repeated except for one, and that is the Sabbath. That one is not repeated in the New Testament. All right, so we're no longer under that Sabbath law. Now, why do we worship on Sundays? Well, that is the day in which Christ rose from the dead. It says in the Gospels, such as Mark chapter 16, it says, Early on the first day of the week, just as the sun was rising, the women went to the tomb and found it empty. So Christ rose on Sunday. And so that became the day of worship for the people of God. And you can see in the book of Acts, people of God began to worship on the first day of the week together, corporately. For example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And there Paul spoke to the Christians who were there. And so in the New Testament, it began to shift to Sunday was the day of worship, celebrating that as the day of the Lord's resurrection. Next question is, do you think Christians can be demonized or have demons attached to them? Well, the first part of the question, I do not believe Christians can be possessed by the devil or a demonic spirit. Reason comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul states, So do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And we know John 14, John 16, that when a person comes to Christ, that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. With God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in a believer, I do not believe that God, the Holy Spirit, will share his temple with the devil or a demonic spirit. So those who have Christ, I do not believe, can be demon-possessed. Now, having said that, can Christians fall into sin? Yes, they can. Can they fall under the power of sin? Yes. If there's sin that they allow into their life and they do not confess it and repent and turn away from it, then that power of sin the devil can use to hinder that person's walk with Christ and get them farther away from intimate fellowship with God. Uh, but I do not believe they can be demon-possessed. Now, having said that, can they be attacked by the demonic and Satan? Absolutely. Ephesians 6 talks to us that we are indeed in a spiritual battle all right, against principalities and powers, very powerful forces of darkness. We are indeed in a spiritual battle here. So that's something we need to be aware of. Not only do we battle the world and its ideas, we battle sin in ourselves and in the culture. And there is a great spiritual battle that rages upon us. Now, the second part of this question is, do demons attach themselves to human beings? Okay, I'm going to say no on this one. And the movement that says, you know, they, you know, where people say, oh, I can see a demon on your right shoulder with purple horns and, you know, fangs and red eyes. I don't find that in the Bible. I don't find where anywhere in the Bible where people are delivering other Christians from the demon of lust and the demon of overeating and, you know, and the demon of selfishness. Those are part of the sin nature that we must identify, turn from, and repent of. You know, James says in chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? So when we submit to God's authority and his word, we're called to resist the devil. And when we do, James says, literally, he will flee from you. 
So I believe that there is sin that we hold on to that can ensnare us and bring us under its grips. But I personally do not hold that demons attach themselves to us and can jump on other people from us. I believe that a lot of that is sin that we're holding on to and not confessing and repenting and turning from that brings us under its power. And that's something that we need to deal with. Now, having said that, I do not downplay the spiritual warfare that we are in. Indeed, we are in a battle zone that many of us Christians have forgotten that we are indeed in a spiritual war against powerful forces, principalities and rulers and the powers of darkness. And therefore, every Christian needs to have upon them their spiritual armor there. Here's one that I get a lot uh, with young people. And it says, please explain 1 Timothy 2.12. Let me give you the context of that passage. Paul is talking about the order of worship here. And he says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, right? So what does that mean? Paul is often accused of being a male chauvinist. Well, there's several interpretations of this particular passage. Okay, so I'm just going to give you one. But there are several. You're going to have to study the Bible on this one and figure out what the best meaning is. There's several interpretations to this one. Paul says here, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, what is Paul saying here? And how is this particular passage applied? I believe that according to biblical teaching, it is not all women are to subject themselves to men, all right? But a husband is leader over his home. And several passages throughout the Bible, a a wife is called to submit to the leadership of her husband. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Right? So the principle of headship and submission is established in the Christian home. But it's also expressed in God's house or the church as well. So in this passage, the leadership of the church, the office of elder and deacon is established by God to the men. If you look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 of overseers and deacons, it states that they must be the husband of one wife. And the deacon as well, he must be the husband of one wife. That is the principle of headship and submission established in the home, and I believe in God's house, the church. Now, that does not mean women are do not have the spiritual gifts, all right, of teaching and leadership. They certainly do. It's the office of elder and deacon. I believe the leadership of the church is dedicated to men. Now, how do you apply that? That's the question, all right, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. What does he mean by that? All right, now, here's how several churches apply it, okay? This is the principle of headship and submission. Now, some will say this only, it's cultural. It only applies to the first century. Well, that's difficult there because the next verse, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve And Adam was not deceived. It was a woman who was deceived. All right. So Paul points to the order of creation. The fact that Adam was created first and then Eve is created from Adam. All right. And that leadership, even in the, so leadership, that order of headship and submission is established even before the fall. All right. It's, It's found in the order 
of creation. And then Adam is given the order to take care of the garden. And it says Eve was made as a helpmate for him. And then when Eve sins, the responsibility falls on Adam. All right. God has a talk and holds Adam responsible. So that order of headship and submission is established at creation. It's even held in the uh, relationship of the Trinity. It says the head of every woman is the man. The head of every man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. So even in the relationship in the Trinity, there's the order of headship and submission. So it's rooted in the Trinity itself and in creation. So how do you apply this then in God's church? Well, Here's how several churches apply it, and you're going to have to study the Bible and, and see which one. Some churches will say that the woman can do anything in the church as long as she's under the leadership of the men, elders and deacons, and as long as they allow her to, she can. Some churches will say, well, a woman can teach women and children, but she cannot teach over men. And there are other churches that say as long as a woman has the authority delegated to her from the elders and the deacons of the church, then at certain times and on certain subjects, she can teach over men and children. So it's how you apply this particular text and, and what is it you mean by, you know, authority over a man. That's what you're going to have to study on the text. But I believe basically it is saying that the leadership of the home you know, has been established by God. The husband is to lead the home. And in God's house, then elders and deacons who lead the church are to be qualified men. And the women should serve under their leadership. I believe that's the basics of this passage. And how you apply it then, that's the question. Different churches apply it differently. But as long as you're holding to that principle, I believe you're being consistent with the biblical text. But that's that's a tough one here. Now, some will ask that question because they see Christianity as oppressing women, as oppressive to women. Well, just the contrary is true. You know, it is the gospel that has elevated the status of women. And wherever I go around the world, wherever Christianity comes and gets a foothold, it has embraced and exalted the status of women all over the world. Jesus exalted the status of the women in the Gospel of Luke. Women were a vital part of his ministry. They had vital parts in the book of Acts. You look at Priscilla and Aquila and other women in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 16, Paul names prominent women who really helped him in ministry. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So even if he's an unbeliever, by your quiet submission to him, you can win him to Christ without a word. And then he says to the husbands, husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives to treat them with respect as the weaker partner, as the heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. And so Paul is saying they are co-heirs with you in, in Christ. All right. So equal in nature. Right. But uh, the leadership is the responsibility of the husband who is to, as Paul writes in Ephesians, to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so in no way does it denigrate the status of a woman or devalue her. 
indeed it's Christianity that is, and wherever I've gone around the world, wherever the gospel has gone, it has exalted the status of women all over the world. This is a principle of headship and submission that is established by God through the order of creation and the very relationship within the Trinity itself. This brings us to an end to this section of Tough Questions Teens Ask, many coming from our youth recent youth conference, Youth Apologetics Conference. I wasn't able to get to all the questions, but for more in-depth answers to these questions, some of these questions are really tough, and if you want more in-depth answers, go to our website, evidenceandanswers.org, and type in some keywords, and you'll see interviews and articles on some of these questions, going into more depth as we address some of these issues. So I invite you to go there to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you for being with us. I look forward to seeing you again here on radio or at one of our conferences. We do a youth apologetics conference every year and an adults apologetics conference every year. So go to our website, Evidence and Answers, and look and see when the next conference is coming near to you. Thank you for being with us. Look forward to seeing you again here on Evidence and Answers. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church Bible study or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, 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 hey.